0: This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 94 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. With me today is Eric Mayaris. Eric spent nearly 30 years in the U.S. military, first with the Marine Corps and later with the U.S. Army in an intelligence role. He served at the proverbial tip of the spear throughout his career and deployed to some of the most dangerous corners of the world. Now that he's transitioned out of the service, he has found a new mission, helping members of the very same units he served with face the personal challenges brought on by so many years of unrelenting combat and separation from their families. I invited Eric onto the podcast today to talk about his experiences both before and during the global war on terror and the effect it had on him, his family, and his fellow service members. But before we dive into Eric's story, I want to ask you, the listener, a question. Has this podcast given you a renewed interest in the history of the Cold War? Do you want to share that interest with others? Well, now there's a fun and interactive way to introduce your family and friends to the topic. I'm talking about 15-Minute Cold War, a new strategy-based card game. With the two expansion packs currently available, or using the brand new Complete Edition, up to 10 players can battle each other for global domination. As one of the great powers during the Cold War, Use your armed forces to attack opponents while defending yourself with military, scientific, and economic assets. There are also wild cards based on real events and people to keep things interesting. For example, how will Oleg Penkovsky weaken one side or strengthen another? Players don't have to know any history to start playing, just learn the color codes and point values of each card. My 8-year-old daughter understood the game mechanics within a few minutes and has already won several rounds against her mom and I. You can also use the new speed tokens to boost the rate of play by up to 50% for large multiplayer games for when the Cold War turns hot. If you've heard me mention 15-Minute Men Cold War before, then there are two brand new updates you should know about. Starting now, any order for more than $50 gets free worldwide shipping. And if you use the discount code SPYCRAFT101, you'll get 15% off your entire order. Find it at That's 15mincoldwar.com. That's 15 5 min coldwarcom And make sure to follow at 15-Minute Cold War on Instagram. Eric, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Absolutely, Justin. I appreciate you bringing me on here.
0: This is great. Absolutely. Yeah, we've been in contact for over a year now online on social media, I think. So it's great to finally speak to you one-on-one. Same here. So your story is a little bit different from a lot of what I focused on in the past, because most of my previous guests were either involved in intelligence operations or wrote about ones that took place decades ago, but your own experiences are, are much more recent than that. So has that made it difficult for you to speak publicly about yourself in any way?
1: You know, it, it did. It did probably about a year and a half ago when I first decided to sort of come out of the shadows, right, and and onto the internet, which for the kind of line of work that I did and and, and those that you've interviewed, it's kind of the opposite of what we train and prepare our lives to be. But as you mentioned earlier, I I had a purpose and a mission. And when I thought through it, then I thought it was the most important thing to do is to be able to share aspects of my story that can reach people and provide a message.
0: Right. I'm really glad that you do because you can really hook people in with the stories that you tell, but you're also able to, you know, share the cost of those, especially in the the kind of units that you're in that a lot of people might initially think, you know, that that cost doesn't really come into effect. It's they're you know very different guys or different breeds, so to speak. And so they probably don't share the same burdens as other people, but that I know that couldn't be farther from the truth.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, there's this fallacy that the guys, n- nothing happens to them or their families. And that's actually the complete opposite. Actually, there's a, a lot of suffering and a huge toll that goes behind the scene.
0: I'm glad that you're able to talk about it a little bit more. So I know that there are, of course, certain things that we won't really be able to go into detail with about your more recent experiences. But do you anticipate that you'll be able to open up, you know, with the years coming, you know, that you'll be able to talk a little bit more about certain things that happened, you know, say in the the 2010s, for example, as opposed to the 1990s?
1: You know, I I do. I think it was, you know, from the beginning, from planning to, to go online and, and share who I am and my story. There was a lot of planning that that obviously went with it and consulting a lot of my mentors and former leaders on, on how to go about it, right? And because there was a plan and an intent that's made it easy to kind of create that left and right limit, which I'm fairly comfortable staying within them and into the future. Because once you, you know, as you know, once you start off this path, you, you, can, you can think you're not going to, there's something that's a secret, but it, it, they always come out. However, you know, from a national security perspective, I, I won't touch those elements, nor would I disclose anything about the organizations, nor the missions, but the life of it, absolutely.
0: Right, right. Very understandable. So I'm glad we can talk about those aspects any way today. So for you personally, I understand from what you said in the past that your upbringing was like very formative and kind of set you on this path to begin with. So can you talk a little bit about how you did grow up? I know it was in South Florida.
1: Yeah, Yep. Yeah. It was South Florida. I came in as an immigrant. So my, my mom was pregnant with me when she left Cuba in May of 1971 with a small group of my family. And we were fortunate that we ended up in Miami where the rest of the Cubans were going up to New Jersey, I believe. And so we started our lives in, in, in Hialeah, like every other sort of immigrant family that came in. And as of note, I think we were at that time frame one of the last uh, airplanes that was authorized to leave during you know whatever political kind of deal there was between the U.S. And, and Cuba, and so we you know we started our life in in Hialeah, Florida, which is which is great for me. It it really it really set who I am as an individual, what I learned on the streets, and then what motivated me in multiple facets to to leave Hialeah and and move out and give back to my family for for bringing me here.
0: Yeah, it's hard to imagine what your life would have been like had you not been able to make one of those final flights out of Cuba. You know, it might have taken – had been very successful but on a very different path as well, I can imagine. Yeah. So who were the people that you grew up around there? Because I've spent a small amount of time in Miami, and I've recently interviewed a few guys from there, and it is is quite a unique cast of characters that I've come across so far.
1: It, it is, you know, and it's funny because I think, you know, one of your guests, Rick, I've recently got to, to know him and read his book. And I'll tell you like it it was amazing, but it was also eye-opening to read about somebody else that came from the straight, you know, same streets that I walked, but almost two decades ahead of me, right? And before that, in all the years in the military, I don't think I had met anybody from Hialeah, nor did they know how to spell it. So yeah, coming coming from there, really did shape me into my career and, and into today.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. So some of those guys, I understand that you were kind of around the circle of some of the guys that were involved in, like the Bay of Pigs invasion, for example, a few years before you arrived.
1: I did. So that was, it's interesting because it took decades after, you know, in the military to kind of realize what was around me. You know, as a boy in the streets, I knew, I don't know, maybe like Miami Vice and the TV shows, right? Because you knew that they were Filmed and about where you live, but it was part of my daily life growing up in junior high and high school when you're kind of really paying attention to the to the world around you and so but I had a really good ended up being sort of like my father, but you know adopted me sort of in a way, but he was my like my stepdad and so you know Mr. clean and so he had done stuff. It wasn't until maybe the last 10 years that I really pay attention and did he kind of share with me sort of that support to the Bay of Pigs and to the community at large in Miami. And of interest, he actually kind of protected that a lot when I was growing up. And it, it wasn't until I think it was when I was at the National Intelligence University, actually taking a formal class on on Bay of Pigs and, and, and sort of sitting down and looking at it, did, did it kind of make more sense what had been going on? And who was around me, should I say?
0: I'll bet you know I've gotten to talk to some of those guys, like I mentioned, and and you said Rick earlier, and I, I've talked to a few others, and it's just absolutely incredible what they went through. And I had a chance to go a couple of years ago to the 60th anniversary event at Tamiami Airport. Oh wow. there, and okay. you know you could look around, and honestly, all those guys there, you know, the youngest guys there were about 80 years old at that time, of course, but right, just probably the toughest, most patriotic crowd of human beings I've ever been around in my life were those guys and their descendants as well. So really just an amazing group of guys. You could get that kind of that aura off of them, honestly, on that day of all days too. You
1: know, it, just to add, they besides that they were an extreme sense of professionalism in the sense of, you know, operational security, OPSEC, right? Like I didn't know I'd, I'd lived a young life in OPSEC till later on in my career when essentially you know, I would always come back or, or come visit. And this is while I was in on active duty, then and come visit Mr. Clean. And, and on the phone, he would never let me talk about anything, right? It was very, very short, didn't want to know where I was at, didn't know, want to know what I was doing. It's just, hey, how you doing? Are you good? All right, I'll see you. I'll see you at some point. And again, it, it, it was just the way that they, I don't want to say looked over their soldiers, but they continue to live that life post that era and into today, right? I don't don't know what's going on still on the streets of Miami but those guys still protect um you know somewhere deep in their hearts there's I, I think they still want to you know resolve what's going on with Cuba and so they they maintain some level of security and and I, I'm just amazed by it because that takes that takes a toll on an individual
0: oh yeah I'm certain and those guys you know the the survivors of that event they all paid a, a terrible price for that and just just an incredibly impressive group of people and I'm very glad to have you know, gotten to know them just the slightest bit over the past couple of years. So, Eric, I, I understand that you joined the Marine Corps as, I guess, you were uh, late teens or early 20s when you when you first joined up. Is that right?
1: That That's right. Yeah, I was in, a, in 11th grade, so probably 17, 18, right? Actually, I think I signed at 18. I already had been in the, sort of the, the delayed entry program. I knew that was something I wanted to do right around 11th, maybe 10th grade, but 11th grade you know, shaped by Mr. Clean. I'd also had been in, say, the Boy Scouts and Civil Air Patrol. So I kind of understood a little bit of that, that structure. The reality was, I knew I needed to get out of the streets of of Miami, or I was going to end up as a few friends of mine, either dead or in jail, because that was the trajectory that I was on, right? Mm. I was no angel by any accords, and and barely even, you know, graduated high school uh, on time, just because of the life and the time that I had been going through. So the Marine Corps was something that I fell in love with from the beginning for, you know, a variety of reasons. Obviously the uniform and you just see the Marine recruiter coming in or the person that they brought into the university, I mean to the high school, and I said, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go. That's gonna be my ticket. Take it out and and yeah, and, and sort of emulate Mr. Clean and and sort of his service and his patriotism for the country. I didn't understand it at the time, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. But yes, I, I joined the Marines.
0: Hmm. Fantastic. So this was the, I guess, like the early 1990s. Is that right? Had had like Desert Storm already finished at that time? Like what was the outlook at the time that you were first joining up?
1: Well, it's funny because it's right at the tail end of the Cold War campaign, right? So I recently got a, a certificate from it because I had been in the Marines during the whole Cold War, the light, late, late, mm. last part of it, right? Just joke, jokingly. But it was, it was 1991 when I actually left to basic training. So you know, by the time I signed the delayed entry program, but it was September 12, 1991, when I actually stepped on the little yellow feet at Paris Island. Wow,
0: wow! So what did you do in the Marines? What was your first job?
1: So the first job origin it it was always within infantry. I originally was signed up to do active duty and my good friend, the recruiter, <laughs> hosed me and <laughs> I ended up leaving on a on, on a reserve contract and I felt suckered to it. I guess something was going on in the whole East Coast with recruiting and and, and to a point you make, you know, kind of the, the post Gulf War, they needed more people on reserves and active duty. So ended up going into the the marine reserves with the intent to get back on active duty, you know, per the recruiter would be taken care of when I got back. So I went in as a tow gunner, and then it went to a variety of reserve units for the next five and a half years. So between the tow gunner, I then became an infantryman. I was in a surveillance and target acquisition platoon as a scout sniper. And then I went to Fort Anglico, which is a air naval gunfire liaison company. Sort of a forward observer. I forgot the, the exact name, but those are pretty much the, about the five roles in in command recruiting in the Marines. As I continue to try to push to get myself on active on back on active duty.
0: Hmm. Okay, wow, that's already like a, a full and, and seems kind of like a fulfilling career right there. But I, I know that really you were just getting started at that point, weren't you?
1: I was getting started. Yeah, I was. I, I was kind of burnt out by the notion of the stubbornness. Of the Marine Corps, right? You got someone who's in the reserves, originally on an active duty contract, who's just trying to get back on active duty. So that was really frustrating. It kind of set a course in my mind on sort of what military service should be and how the flexibility for service members should be being able to go from the reserves to active duty, or or choose a job that they want to do in light of future career goals. Because I was doing that amidst of knowing that I, I wanted to pursue education because ultimately I wanted to serve in the military. And what I had in my mind was to either go to, you know, the, the CIA or, or NSA or, or even the FBI. So I wanted to kind of do that military part. And again, a little bit, I didn't quite know what Mr. Clean did, but I knew it was sort of in that spooky world, right? And th- and, that, and that's what I knew from, from the high school. So that was kind of my trajectory where I was trying to go to.
0: I see. Yeah, it sounds like he was his influence really kind of played a huge role in your career choices as it went on, but that's understandable. So I know that eventually you decided to switch over to the army. So what was it that kind of spurred that decision for you?
1: Sitting as a dependent at at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, I got in there with my previous marriage that. She had ended up at, at DLI as a student for Arabic, and I was then trying to kind of find another unit to go to in Nevada. Like it was a, like a, a reconnaissance unit, and I had stepped into DLI, and I and I just see the, cam- the canvas or the, the school, and I'm and I'm thinking, going, wow, they this is the government actually pays for all four services and others to come here and learn the language from six months to a year, you know, and then most of them from an intelligence background. And so looking at that and just looking at that point, what our schedules were going to be and the, in sort of the, the conflict that it would be to continue to stay in the reserves. I, I, I looked into the army and I looked into sort of military intelligence that I don't, I don't even think I knew that that was an option in the Marines. And then it just kind of made sense in the army to say, okay, this is, you know, let, let me adjust my plan and my professional plan and my, my family plan and, and, and switch over from the Marines to the army, which was. It was a difficult choice, but, you know, I went ahead and did it. Hmm.
0: Fantastic. So did you, were you able to enlist directly into the Special Forces unit at that time, or was that something that you had to volunteer for again once you were already in?
1: Yeah, no, I I ended up, so once I finished DLI and I went through sort of the Intel school to become a signals intelligence professional, at the course, I want to say, where I did the, the it might have been at the language school, excuse me. I had met somebody who was a cadre there who knew someone at the SF group or at the branch at the military intelligence branch where they're kind of assigning jobs and' we're deciding that you know the the next move for soldiers. And the lady had just spoken to me, got into to know me, and she's like, "Hey, I, th- I think you'll be really good. I mean, there's some openings to go to seventh Special Forces group. And at that point, I already had gone to Airborne School for the Marine Corps. So that was really good for, you know, as a, as an airborne soldier and as a linguist and signer to go to seventh group. So that's how I ended up, fortunately, starting my career, actually my entire military army career has been within the special, op the special operations community. Hmm.
0: That's fantastic. I, mean, I think that's something that a lot of people have as a goal, but they aren't really able to achieve it. So, what was the difference for you? I guess it had to be night and day between your new role and your, your former time in the Marine Corps. Was the Marine Corps a lot more like, I don't know if I'd call it like standards-based and inflexible and that kind of thing? Or is that just kind of my outsider perspective of it?
1: You, you know, I, I think I was fortunate because it, it was in the reserves. And I did spend some time, a couple of months doing, was it Joint Task Force 6, so counter-narcotics operations, so working with law enforcement. So that was a good you know they were flexible. That mentality was flexible. You know the the surveillance and target acquisition platoon and even the Anglico, everybody was easy just because they they all had regular life careers. Now the the formal training, you know, that was rigged. That 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 you know that was the school of infantry. But then the reserve units were they were they were they were simpler, right? It was this is pre GWAT, so it wasn't much of a culture change with with people. Definitely the Marines, at least in the beginning, were really focused. On what they did, right? Marines love being Marines. They love their job and then learning the jobs of others uh, as you're taught. And then coming into the Army, into SOF and in Special Forces Group, coming in as a military intelligence to where now you have, you know, career Special Forces Green Beret, that was a little bit of a difference. So I did step into sort of a division in sort in of worlds at, at that time.
0: Okay, okay. That's good to hear that the Marine Corps had not. Was not that much of a difference, not as much as I had expected. Anyway, so if I recall correctly, Seventh Special Forces Group is tasked mostly with like Latin America. Is that right?
1: Correct. When I was there, <laughs> ah, okay. I, I I have bumped into those guys in the mountains of Afghanistan and all, all over the world. But <laughs> yeah, during that time, that was yeah that was their their primary their primary focus was was Latin America.
0: Okay, so prior to September eleventh, you were able to go down on missions to Latin America. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yep. I did a, a, a few trips. I did one or two rotations to Colombia doing foreign internal defense, which was just awesome. I really enjoyed working with the, the battalions that I was attached to and sort of the, the recipients of the training. And then I did one trip to Panama, which was really good from a national security perspective with capabilities. That was a great eye opener and sort of a, as a young soldier being sort of, you know, opening the doors to to the intelligence community. And then the last one or one of the other ones was to Ecuador, which was supposed to be another foreign internal defense. But that's where I actually had, we had a small skirmish or, or small combat, if you would.
0: Yeah, I was I was very shocked when I first heard about that. Honestly, can you talk about what happened in Ecuador? Because it sounds like it, I don't know if I'd say went sideways, but some unexpected things happened while you were there.
1: Oh, absolutely. went sideways. Well, it went sideways for me and, you know, for the, the poor dudes who, who attacked the convoy. So this was just supposed to be another, you know, typical FID mission, seventh group working with a partner nation in, in this particular one was in Ecuador. And so we're, you know, the, the movement or the plan was flying to Quito and a big convoy of you know, the, the battalion and all the capabilities I don't know. I think it was maybe 21 vehicles of just varieties of sizes of gear and folks making a convoy from from Quito to the Putumayo region, right? And and uh, you know, and that's just right along the border of south of Colombia and and it's north of of Ecuador. It's pretty crappy terrain. It's a lot of one single lane roads, and it kind of parallels. The the pipeline, which historically have always been hit for a variety of reasons, so there's all kinds of nefarious things going on. You know, I don't want to say that we were targeted from the beginning. I think we stepped into it or became a target once we started the journey. Let me know if you want me to go. If you want me to go into the details,
0: yeah, I'm riveted, honestly.
1: Yeah, no, no problem. So my task was, it was simple. You know, as a signals intelligence professional, it was to provide force protection at that point from Quito all the way to to the Putumayo right and this is using signals intelligence and really to detect anything that would have been an imminent threat towards the convoy i don't think we had much of anything as far as real time intelligence as we do as we did during the global war on terror and this was basically hey you got a you got a threat brief Okay. And then, you know, and in the vehicle, you've got a bunch of, you know, wearing a bunch of gear to facilitate the role that I had to do. And so throughout maybe the first five hours of convoy, very typical, you know, a lot of it was really just observation of people and, and how they looked at the the convoy. And as we started to get closer to the mountains and maybe a few hours from our destination point, one of the towns, it's just, you know, the people were just acting weird. And you can tell, Right, when people act weird. It's kinda of like a movie, you know, in a western movie, you you park somewhere and everybody kinda of goes in the building, you're like, Well, that's that's kinda of weird, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, the team looked at it. I was in the command vehicle, sorry. I was in the lead vehicle with the commander, the command sergeant major and a medic, and then myself in the back seat. And so everybody else did the visual stuff. I did the the sort of the, the signals and we just we all kind of came to agree to hey, there's just something going on, right? And so the alert went to the to the rest of the convoy just to be alert. A few minutes after we leave the one stop prior to where we got ambushed, it was, it was just the same road. It kind of curves around the, the finger of, of one of the, the hills there. And it was a little, and it was a bridge. And ultimately what it ended up being is, ooh, no, it just escaped me. It wasn't the FARC, but it was the, EL, I think it was the ELM, sorry. It's one of those two knuckleheads where we're essentially taking hostage one of the mayors from one of the local towns and just robbing people. But it was also kind of their, you know, their activity to to kidnap somebody for, for money or whatever political reasons and then make money and, and also training. And so we got we got caught up right in it. And as we came around a blind kind of bend to the left, you know, there was nowhere else to go because the, the bridge was about 100, not even 100 yards from where we turned, probably less than that, about 50. And we were greeted by small arms fire, you know, the, to the front of the vehicle. Vehicle backs up. We, you know, we take our positions, come out. This is, you know, in the dead of the night, and I have to take off all of this sensitive SIGINT gear and kind of put it to the side, and now, kind of go back into soldier mode, right, and to to, to do our part. And as I was coming out and trying to, get, there was nowhere to fire because of the, the, the limited space. And the doors were open. The commander and the CSM were in front of me, and the, and the medic, as I go to to jump for cover. I got hit in the in the air by luck from the other guy, and that was kind of the, the start of my my deployment there.
0: Wow! My gosh! So these guys were right in the middle of a like a nighttime operation. They had no idea that it was you and your organization of all people coming around the corner. So they just did they. I'm, I'm trying to imagine did they just fire at a set of headlights as far as they knew, or or something like that? They, you think
1: they did? Yeah, yeah, they did because it it wasn't even like they they didn't try to get us ahead of time, right? And I I say this post now you know 20 years of the GWAT before I, we we didn't understand it right but maybe some of the more senior green berets that were there we would have probably got hit earlier versus stepping right into their ex mm. where they're doing activities cuz that it it didn't it sucked for us cuz we got hit but it was m- more of a disadvantage for them cuz we kind of rolled around rolled into that area mm. so yeah i mean we, we so i don't think they knew i had gotten sort of a, a, a a SIGINT indicator, just seconds prior, just enough to tell the, the the vehicle, "Hey, I think something's going on." It was sort of an abnormal sort of burst, you know, activity in, for the location and, and time, which probably gave us a few seconds just to to go from from you know that that whole green yellow to red. We were we were right on that on that cusp of a red, and once the the first shots came in then it was easier to, to transition straight into red and, and then just take, take action.
0: Wow. Wow. So you were hit in those first few seconds, as soon as you're exiting the vehicle, were you kind of out of the fight at that point or did you, you know were able to return fire and, and rally and that sort of thing.
1: So coming out of the vehicle, no, yeah, no, I mean, not for, not for that activity. It was it for me, bottom line, besides, mm-hmm. you know, reaching for the, the weapon. Cause those guys were, were active. And then, after being evaluated by the first medic that came in, I still had some gear on me. And so it, it's interesting because it went from, you know, Mi I signer in the vehicle going, hey, you know, I'm surrounded by a bunch of SF guys. This is their job, right? Like, Hi. I know my my place in here. I know my... Speciality, that's kind of where I had, you know, kind of referenced earlier on sort of the military intelligence meet, you know, Green Beret world, you know, at, the, at then at, at that time. And then for me, sitting in the car as a former infantry guy, scout sniper and the things that I had done. But my role there was 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 different, except when then the bullets came in. Right. So then you you kind of phase back into that protective role. And once you're engaged. But once I was, you know, in basically in the ditch, now, you know, with a medic on me going, okay, well, I'm I'm pretty much out unless anything gets more horrible. There's a whole bunch of Green Berets up there that know right. what you're doing. Let me go back to my part. And I was I was fine with that. I've always been fine with that. So I literally went back into sort of my, my equipment to be able to provide whatever other situational awareness I could while I was there with the capabilities hmm. that I had.
0: I got you. So you're still able to do your job even after being shot. And like you're laying in the ditch there, but you yeah. still got your, your head screwed on tight and all that. That's good. That's good.
1: Yeah. I, I, yep. I did it there in a the ditch. And then when they transported me back to the bus, I did it for maybe like the next hour, two hours. And this is just recalling from one of the medics, he said, you know, that I I, I passed out because they, whatever they put in my IV, I was still had the headsets on and I was still, I was still working my gear and then I was just out.
0: Wow. So were you, were, were there other wounded Americans in that particular engagement?
1: No, no, that was it. Everybody else, that was a casualty. I think it was maybe, they may have taken out four or five. I think the fifth may have bled out, if I remember correctly.
0: Four or five of the ELN guys or of your like partner force, you mean?
1: Yes, no, of the ELN guys. Oh, no, 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 okay, I got ELN you. guys.
0: Yeah, earlier you said those poor guys, and I was going to laugh, but now I understand that they were actually at a huge disadvantage, even though they...
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, they, chose, they chose the wrong set of heads, like, headlights.
0: <laughs> Definitely, first of 21 vehicle <laughs> convoy there. That's not good. So was was that it for you in Ecuador? Did you have to get medically evacuated right away or something like that?
1: I did. I ended up going. We went from there. They quickly kind of had to sanitize a bit of what was going on with the activities that I was doing. Get me to a clinic, and from the clinic, kind of wrap it up. Get me back to Quito. Get seen by the the embassy, and then I was on a on a plane back to Fort Bag. Wow! Because again, you know, I think something you had mentioned. You know, there wasn't – none of this stuff was going on. This wasn't – you know, this wasn't the GWAT. This wasn't the Gulf War. So it wasn't very common to have these kind of incidents going on happen to, to SF.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, I bet some of the people were treading new ground trying to get you evacuated there, I would imagine. Yes. So did you wind up getting a, a Purple Heart for that? Because it was – like you said, it was not during a, you know, declared war or anything like that. But it, certainly it was a combat injury.
1: I did, yeah. It It was – an amazing effort by everyone who who assisted the effort from Seven Special Forces Group, United States Special Operations Command, I believe, you know, it went to the MI, the Army Military Intelligence Branch. I remember seeing some of the paperwork because, you know, the initial reports is someone... Twisted words and put bandit bandit, right? And as you know, words matter in reports. Oh yeah, sure. And then someone said, you know, they said, Well that you know, they they you know, they it went the wrong way, right? Some somebody's bias is probably reflected in, in their in their analysis or, or or was protecting something, I would say, but the the army military intelligence branch stuck up, you know, defended. What went on? And interesting, right? Like you're 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 not gonna politically, you know, not approve a Purple Heart if you would for a military intelligence soldier when when they have access to intelligence. Mm-hmm. So you know they did some investigating, and then they found out no, nope, it it collaborates with what happened, and then they were able to reroute all the paperwork for the Purple Heart. So I think to your point, sort of outside of. You know, a war or or the GWAT. This was the beginning of issuing awarding a Purple Heart for you know what would then become other contingency operations oh, or wow. other or other operations. Yeah. Huh.
0: So you were kind of leading the way, even unintentionally, at least. Interesting.
1: I think so. Yeah, they, it did set the precedence. I mean, I I, I knew no better as an E four at the time, but later on in 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 time, you know, as I matured within special operations and, and you know again we saw the first of things happening within our community it was good to be able to you know to know not to give up especially when it, it in regards to taking care of of, server, of service members and their and their families okay. you know we don't stop at no
0: That's terrific great 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 So that was obviously not a career ending injury for you. Actually, l- let me ask you that. Was that an option? Did you consider like medical retirement or anything like that? Or were you like, I got to get back on my feet immediately?
1: No, I need to get back on my feet because I want to say prior to that trip, I already had known, I already had applied to go to then the organization that I would follow on to. So when I got back, part of the motivation was to quickly get back on my feet because I would have to then attend selection. So for the next four or five months while I healed, I actually pushed forward to be able to prepare for selection.
0: Okay. I see. So you, you mentioned the organization and I've heard you say it in other venues as well, but you've never referred to it by name. Is that because it does not have an an unclassified or a publicly known name, this this unit that you went to?
1: Just to, to, for simplicity, I keep it within, you know, Army Special Operations Command and a Special Missions Unit. Because in reality, for me and my purpose, that's my goal, it's more about me and those that I've served with, not an organization.
0: Okay, okay, I got you, yeah, that that makes perfect sense, honestly. So once you went through the selection, and I, I know that you passed it, I don't really know what the selection was like, but did you continue doing SIGINT work similar to what you had done with Seventh Group?
1: In a different capacity. So essentially, ultimately becoming a special operator with a key focus on intelligence, right? So that was sort of my, if you would wrap it up, it would be you know in, intelligence in w- within special operations at a SMU level.
0: Okay, okay, I guess. So that could encompass a lot more than SIGINT. Like, wh- I mean, did you receive training and yep. I don't know, for example, human intelligence and and that sort of thing as well? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I did. What is the training like for that? I, I would have to imagine it's kind of continuous, right? Like, are there just a set number of official schools that you go to, or does the, because it is such a unique organization, do they, I don't want to say make it up, but is it a lot of like organic, you know, unit, inter-unit training and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. So ultimately any of these organizations are always meeting the requirements of special operations command, right? The greater special operations sort of mission set, right? So from special reconnaissance, sensitive activities, direct action, hostage rescue. I think there's 12 of them and it literally evades me right now. So those are the like the 12 main missions underneath SOF. So w- within that, yes, there is hard skills and soft skills, so everything from you know military freefall to swimming to shooting to survival and escape and resistance training, you know, all of the all of those hard skills. As well as then the, the the intelligence skills from, you know, for me, it, you know, and, and others would be intelligence, work languages, trade craft, right, clandestine trade craft, and so forth. So I, I was privileged to be able to just the time that I was there to be privileged to learn a lot and be trained in order to be able to serve, which is, you know, you can't put a price on that, right? Mm-hmm. Just the ability to to continue serving these organizations, to be entrusted. Train, training is the least part. is then to be trusted to do that. Hmm. So within signals intelligence, human intelligence, I've done computer network operations. I've done later on towards the end, OSINT. So I think you know, besides GEOINT, I've touched all of the all of the ints in in an operational capacity. Interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah, that that seems like quite a lot. So were you already in this organization prior to the September 11th attacks? Then.
1: I was yeah i I basically went through selection process in ninety nine and I started you know my career with a cohort of really good friends in two thousand
0: okay, wow, gotcha, yeah, that was really the the beginning of a lot of stuff there, even at that time prior to the the global war on terror beginning, would you say that like every day was like a high tempo day i mean were you you know i mean in a in a unit of that type were you just kind of pushed to the max all the time, would you say, or was it like more of a relaxed Environment like a flexible environment, kind of like we discussed earlier.
1: No, definitely not not flexible. The mentality is flexible, right? Because it's soft, and then sensitive activities is is relaxed in nature, right? It's not very militant, and even then, you know, so you know the, the conventional military, and then you have special operations, um, and then you have more of a of a kind of this quasi intel, more sensitive work, right? Which is takes unique people. To be able to realize to remember that they're in the military, but they have to be able to be flexible in 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 their minds and how they are as an individual to do more of these sensitive activities but no it was it was busy it, you know and ironically, I think we had less people, but we were doing more, but those more were a little a little bit more systematic and just at the nature of where they were at than the things that were encountered on the, glo- the global war on terrorism, because there was a lot of you know lessons learned and organizations changing just to be able to operate on global war on terrorism where organizations like I came from that were designed to do a primary mission had been doing it for a while, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Wow. Every day you're under attack, whether you realize it or not. Your digital devices contain your entire life, your finances, your conversations with friends and family, your interests, and even your movements. And all of that is vulnerable to an ever expanding class of criminals, scam artists, hackers, and even governments. You don't want to leave your data security entirely in the hands of your ISP or anyone else for that matter. It's up to you to protect yourself using a multi layered defense strategy. Silent offers you. The protection you need to keep your data and devices secure from wireless threats. Their multi shield technology blocks cellular signals, GPS, Wi Fi, Bluetooth, EMP, RFID, NFC, and more. Silent's lineup includes everything from signal blocking wallets all the way up to 40 cubic liter Faraday duffel bags. When you're geared up with Silent, you'll be truly disconnected, undetectable untraceable, and unhackable. And you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order from silent. Find them at slnt.com. That's slnt.com. Yeah, what you said makes perfect sense about these organizations evolving so quickly over time because that those this conflict spread like you said, and tactics change, and technology change, and all that. So I'm sure it was like a, yep. a, a learning environment throughout the entirety of your career, which is probably not surprising. But did you spend a lot of time over the next or over the remainder of your career? I should say, were you doing things like working with the foreign forces like you did in, in South America or were you primarily like, you know, separate from those local, local support and, you know, conventional army units? Yeah, so
1: it's for foreign partners, I did not work with them. Not directly. You know, a lot of them, uh, as you know, is, you know, you're in a hut somewhere in the middle of the mountains or some crappy city somewhere. People tend to work together. They may not ask who they're from, but if you're in the same compound, you tend to help each other, right, or outside the streets, but not to necessarily plan or orchestrate. So actually, really don't for the last 20 years, nothing like I had in Seventh Group that had those partnerships were foreign organizations once. So once I I went onto the other side, it wasn't. Now I did have more sister services within the special mission units. Those I worked almost constantly with and with the intelligence community. So it was a a great sampling of both or all three of them at the same time. Interesting. interesting. a lot of joint operations. Hmm.
0: Wow yeah that, that's hard to imagine so i I know that there there are of course many things that you can't really discuss in detail over for that portion of your career, but you know the global war on terror we kind of first and by default we think about Afghanistan and Iraq, so would you say that those were the majority focus of your the remainder of your time overseas, or did you go like all over the world for all a wide variety of missions
1: a wide variety of missions I would see them more. In campaigns, right? So or so OIF. What is it? Operation is it? Well, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraq Freedom, OCO, whatever all the other names were. That's more of how I I saw them personally, and maybe maybe the folks that I worked with. We didn't quite see it as a rotation to Afghanistan, a rotation to Iraq. It was focused on 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 requirements, and wherever the requirements took us, that's where that's where We went right into that was more of a global. And then it was what popped up on the radar and who was best or who was available, who was best to be assigned individually or part of a team. And that's where you would go. So sometimes, yeah, it could be a trip to Afghanistan, come back, go to go to Latin America, go to Asia or, you know, go to the the national capital region embed into an agency for a month or two months and then roll back out and go somewhere else. So wow. it just, it really depended. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting life. I'd never really paid attention to it until I started to do my claim for disability for the Veterans Administration that I really, I started to realize where you know wh- where I went on the map. And so that was physically, mentally, and in a variety of other sort of things that will haunt you later on. Mm-hmm. It takes a toll.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about that in a moment because this lifestyle, you know, you know, from an outsider perspective, it sounds, oh, wow, that's so cool. That's so stylish. But it's, you know, it's also hard to imagine. It's not like a, it's not like a film where there's a definitive end to it. You know, it's got to grind you down in so many ways, all the time zone changes and the lack of sleep and the not seeing your family and, you know, the jarring changes, you know, that are going on in your life. I'm sure that that wears you down, especially year in and year out as, as you serve. So on that note, because you are in this organization and you're kind of removed from the conventional army, how does that affect the, your daily life? Like things like insurance and, you know, registering your kids for school and, you know, do you have like multiple driver's license? I mean, is there anything about that aspect of it that you can tell us about since you're so far removed from the conventional life and conventional military?
1: You know, the it's not a normal life, right? So it's not a normal military life. And that's just because of what you have to be prepared to do, but more so sort of the way of life in as a you know, in special operations as a special operator, right? And that's also your family's involved, right? And then also add sort of the intelligence community side of the house, right? So you have a soft side, soft, special operations forces side, and you have sort of the the world that comes with the intelligence community, which is complex in its nature. And so I think the more it, it's just not the same battle rhythm. So for me at least, you know, I I met my wife, my current wife, and with my my son who supported me, you know, these last 20 years while I was already in the unit. And so when she met me, she didn't know what even the conventional military looked like and went straight into this very odd World, right? But it was also right, right at the tail when we met September 11, and so there was already sort of I don't want to say not necessarily secrecy, right? It was a lot of what hey, here's what I here's what I can't tell you, or here's you know, there's things that I can't talk about, and here's things that you have to understand that we can't share, right? If that makes it simpler, mm-hmm. and so within the military, you know, you're you're still in you're still a soldier, right? You're still an E4 or an E9. You have requirements to do, but it's—I want to say—it's a little bit easier. It's hard to stay in these units, right? Every day, is, you, you earn your keep, kind of mentality. But then the 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 work you do, and at the level that you do it, and if you've got good leaders, which we we create very good leaders, it takes care of the paperwork and it takes care of promotions and and everything else that comes with with it. There's just odd times with it especially as technology and the internet and databases right that just became a little bit more challenging sometimes but nothing that's not that you couldn't that you couldn't navigate while you're in now the complexities do come post-retirement I've actually had a harder time once I retired than once I was in these organizations
0: that's unexpected so were there a lot of times over the years then that your family did not know like what, what country you were in or when you would be back or anything like that? Was that a common occurrence?
1: About 90, about 80% of the time.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then,
1: you know, it, it isn't, you know, Hey, I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Right. Cause that that's worse for the family members. You know, you, you've got to have them say something they've got to understand because the kids will get sick. The car will break down. You know, the, the ceiling will flood. Something will happen, right? And so they need to be able, and the organizations have really good ways to ensure that your family can get a hold of you. But after a while, they really don't care. There's an aspect of it, you know, and it's kind of funny where they, they're like, hey, I don't know where you were at. I really don't care. I just wanted to let you know that something did pop up in the news when you were gone, right? Mm. So, and you can't change the news. So they they can kind of get a sense especially my spouse after so many years of what I would start to focus on or how would I would start to change or the levels of training or what languages I was learning or what music and TV shows, it's kind of an indicator, right? So you didn't, it's kind of like that silent, you don't have to say, and they just wanted you back. Hmm. They really didn't care.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine as long as you come back every time. Would you, I shouldn't say typically, would you frequently get like, I don't know, at least a week? At home in between this stuff, or was it like I'm coming home for a day and then I'm, I'm going the day after that somewhere else? In the
1: beginning, it was less predictable because once the, the global war on terrorism kicked off, then we were, everybody was fighting fires in new places and, you know, new permissions were granted to be able to operate in certain areas. And so you would, you know, organizations would take advantage of that while you're still doing more of a higher tier requirement. So if there's an emergency that happened, if you were the right person, you would get pulled for that emergency mm-hmm. compared to being on a rotation where you might be replacing one person mm. or a team might be going in, right? So that generally would be a little bit more planned, but there was always something at the higher levels that would go on. There was always an emergency. There was always emergencies. There was always chaos. Later on in time, the whole SOCOM umbrella started to really account, I think, the the conventional army, like, you know, head on pillow. And so we were subjected to that as well. It's like, hey, how long are these operators staying home? Because it's, and and it was being, it was forced to be tracked. And so they were going to sort of essentially these cycles of three and four months. If you were training up to do something on purpose, then you would come back, you would somewhat have a downtime, but that really would mean you know, internal training or take care of some administrative stuff, oh, and you would ramp up, and then you're out the door. But again, if something happened and they needed you by name, then you'd get pulled out. Or if you had to go to the schoolhouse and be an instructor, then you would, and you would get called off the road. But or, or leadership,
0: wow. but you were always busy. I bet. Yep. I bet certainly. So, are there any? Because all this stuff is still basically kind of underlocking key, I know. Are there any success stories or any anecdotes that you can share even in like general terms? Or is that just not something that can see the light of day quite yet?
1: Yeah, I mean the the, the details, yeah. I mean, they would be sexy, they'd be fun to talk about. I mean, it's unfortunately, I mean, if you you know, if you look in the new if you look back on, on reporting, right? And, and and you know the greater special operations were involved at some point. You know, folks that I've worked with or myself may have been in, involved in certain aspects of it, right? Either, you know, the fun part sometimes is definitely being being there when someone got captured or killed or captured or, or something or someone was rescued, right? I think the the rescuing of people became, in time, easier and more emotionally rewarding, right? to go rescue, especially if they're a service member, right? bring one of our own back in light of like ISIS or, or Al Qaeda, right? Like, you know, what's going to happen to those guys. It's not going to be political. Like they're not going to be a a, a typical PLW. So to go, you know, be involved in being there when someone gets rescued or, or, or gathering the intelligence, you know, a small piece of it or a large piece of it is huge. Those are, those are the good ones. So if you've heard success stories where, People came home. I would submit that those were then, you know, things that I, I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. Innovation, creativity, right? When you hear of the greater soft community just developed something or was thinking out of the box, right? The MacGyver's of things. Those are huge. Those don't come out in the story. You don't see guys generally sell patents. But, you know, a lot of the soft operators have created from medical to technology to weapon some amazing technologies and capabilities that have saved the day, right? And a lot of that goes, it doesn't obviously go into public, you know. And then yes, the kinetic stuff, and in particular, the more rewarding ones with the long ones, that long game to really, right? Not just chase some some you know some bad guy down the streets of Ramadi, but someone who maybe we was captured, and it took months and years of exquisite you know manhunting to bring them down those are also rewarding because of the the the, the teams and the in the generations of, if you would of people that have worked on it passionately and endlessly right Long, lot of nights constantly thinking about this which affects the mental health of people
0: hmm. yeah that's got to be an incredible feeling especially like you mentioned being involved in a in a successful hostage rescue like that it, it's hard to imagine a more rewarding mission Than that, at all. So that that's really fantastic. And you know, if you were a part of those, if you were there on the ground or you know elsewhere, I'm sure that that is something that will you'll carry for a very long time. Fantastic. So you you did mention earlier that when it came time to transition out, you faced some unexpected difficulties, and that was not that long ago, right? Just in the past, what three years or so, I think. Three three years. As I look back in time, it was October of 2020 was my last
1: day in the Army. So, you know, six months of that, I got to play sort of civilian in, a, in what's called a steel bridge program, which you get to be part of a work with the company. And then the year prior to that, fortunately for me, and now it's become more common f- across the community, is to start allowing folks within at least the commands, the, the, the Special Operations Command. I think the conventional Army is doing the same thing. These guys that are getting ready to retire, at least after 20 years or plus 20 years, is to start taking inventory of what they've been through. And I'll tell you that that's probably one of the hardest tasks that I've ever done comparatively to anything that any challenges that I've done in the military, trying to recount the, the bumps, the bruises, you know, the, the medicines, the time sick, all of that stuff, the reality of what really hurts. That was hard. And then the administrative paperwork, who are you, when you're transitioning, and who are you, your identity your you know w- once you leave the military is a daunting task
0: hmm. yeah i can I can certainly imagine that, and I guess that putting together all that stuff it's i guess I have to imagine that you're you're in an environment and you have to have a mentality where you push through a lot of injuries and push through a lot of hardship, and then later on you're like, oh, you have to write down every single thing or remember every single thing because it's so it's going to matter. So much. So was that a lot of stuff that you just pushed to the back of your mind until the end of your career, and then you had to refocus on just how, like you said, just all the all the damage that had been done to you personally while you were out there doing your mission.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea I had to. You know, the catalyst for it, unfortunately, was I had two friends die by suicide in the September timeframe of, of 2019. And so there were active duty to operators, phenomenal guys, dealing with the tolls of of service, of, you know, a variety of what what is now called by doctor-free operator syndrome, right? It's a culmination of everything that happens essentially to anybody in special operations, even in the intelligence community, you know, in a high of Load type of life, right? And so when my two friends lost hope and and died by suicide, that shook the walls of our organization. It, it shook me personally, and that sort of took what I call my Pandora's box, opened it, turned it upside down, and shook it, right? And so my Pandora box were a bunch of little boxes, or and you know, or what I call. Um, Manila folders where, if you come back from a trip or training, you do a travel voucher, you put all these documents in it. But I would also put emotionally and physically everything that happened in that folder, seal it up, tape it, you know, document on the front of it and put it in the safe, right, at the skiff, and then go to the next one. And that was over and over and over and over. And so that was a coping mechanism to to continue to draw on that adrenaline and that that sense of purpose at these organizations till then for me, those two guys died. And I had to look in the mirror and go, why did they do it? Why are you any, any different? And then sort of the, you know, the demons come in and you you start to realize that you're just like them. And And at that point for me, it was, I was preparing to have to open at that point in my career it was almost three drawers, three drawers in a safe, full of paperwork. Hmm. Because of the amount of time that I've spent there, that then I had to open every one of those folders to look at the travel vouchers, to know where I had been, but really to account for everything that uh, had happened to me hmm. or that I had endured.
0: Wow. So after that, because it, you said it changed your perspective, can you kind of describe like what kind of strategies did you use for yourself to kind of stay strong through all of that? Because it sounds like yeah. you we're basically going this, through the same stuff that those two guys had gone through.
1: I was absolutely Absolutely. And I and I had been on that road way before them. You know, I helped in the recruiting process to these guys and comparatively I had, you know, been there longer. I just wow. in the faith of God had had survived. And so I was fortunate that when that happened, right, I I was like, Hey, I I need help. And I never had asked for help because that was unfortunate in, in that time. It was a it was a former weakness right because if you had in in particular in this line of work your your mental psyche the you know your personality was huge and so if there was a ding in your armor in in your mind in i guess the way you know, mentally versus physically you could be you could potentially you feared being removed from from an organization that trusted your judgment and in, in your in, in the way you thought and so I had asked because when I started to account for things i realized hey i had several traumatic brain injuries, got hit by a or near an eight R- RPG exploded within meters of an operation when I was in Ramadi. I've spoken to this about it before, but that rocked my world really bad. And, and I didn't know what that was because we didn't know what traumatic brain injuries were at the time. And that was one of the things that was being said that maybe, hey, these individuals either had traumatic brain injuries or post-traumatic stress or other Moral injuries, but more so those the, the first two. And I said, "Hey, I, I need to get to to Walter Reed. They have a program It's called the National Center of Excellence for Traumatic Brain Injury. It's a one month intake program. And I wanted to get away from my unit. I wanted to get away from any anybody in the command that was just patting you on the back and trying to make you feel good. I was like, Nope, I need help. I'm done because I'm 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 in a dark corner, and and I'm struggling, right? And I need help. And so." Fortunately, I went to NICO, which was a a multi-discipline program. You know, I had about 12 specialists that looked at you holistically, from mental all the way down to your toes, to teaching you yoga and art therapy. And within it, I learned to acknowledge what was wrong with me, which is the first part. Understand that there's, there's hope and there's strategies to get better. And then that's where I picked up a lot of the tools on the mental health side. And finally, opening up to someone outside of the therapists and psychologists in my unit, and go, hey, within reason, right, to not to from an opsec, and go, hey, I I need help. And that was the that was my road to to recovery and kind of pulling back from that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Wow, wow, that's amazing. So you went to this outside program there, but I I also just heard you mentioned that the unit has these medical staffers, like you said, therapists and such. So do you feel like that you just needed I don't want to say a second opinion, but you just needed a totally different totally separate form of of treatment or assistance than what they could provide within the unit absolutely. I mean you know units
1: are organizations which are culture, and in particular when they're they're reacting to something as terrible as two suicides right in a given time and this is earlier on now again I, I think I don't you know different commands were dealing with suicide earlier than others. Mine, that was fairly new. We had known externally of former, you know, operators that had died by suicide. But you know, it's a culture of what happens inside is different than what happens outside, right? But when it happened inside, the the you know it was impressive to see the the whole SOCOM umbrella take care of these organizations. But this was newer to us. So as a senior leader in an organization, I think at that point I had been there 19 years. I'm like, okay, I'm I I I wasn't comfortable in the way we were dealing with it, you know, and, and to be fair with everybody that worked there, it just shocked everybody and it was really, really shocking. One is catastrophic. Two, makes you wonder, right? And so yeah. a lot of people just, you know, that whole take a knee, face out, and then we just had to kind of go on our ways. And I I couldn't hear anymore. This is what you're trained for. I I, didn't, I couldn't hear any of that because all I was thinking about was that that dark tunnel and what this would mean to my family. And at that point, I said, I can put to that I need to continue to operate, which was the first time in in you know two decades that traveling and being an operator was more important than than myself or my family. And that was a that was a key turning point for me was to to seek help, which we're good at at problem solving. And I was I'm glad I was able to. You know, problem solve for myself, and then today be able to to share that with others that there is hopes and ways to do it.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic and much needed. So, as as you mentioned, that that kind of shaped what you the arc of of your work outside of the military, right? So, can you talk about what you're doing these days?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, for the maybe the last two years, I think you know by the time we met or we spoke and we connected, I was I was dabbling on social media, right? So. The one thing I did, and it was painful. Again, it was going from someone who learned so much trade craft and had built a world of, of not, primarily not being on the internet. And part of my French, my wife says, "You're an asshole. At Twenty years you didn't let me post a picture of you or anything <laughs> that resembled that resembled that you and I were married." She's a you know she's a U.S. citizen, but she was a foreigner before, so she thought you know. The opinion of her friends and family where she came from, were, <laughs> that is, that she got knocked up by you know by a GI, right? And so, oh but yeah, because I mean, I she couldn't post anything, right? So, who the hell doesn't post a picture of their loved ones, right? It sticks out. <laughs> so, I decided that our community is very difficult, right? It's difficult. The people that are in the units, they're in their own world and they protect themselves rightfully to get their missions done. And the guys that come out of the intelligence community and special operations, they they leave their tribes and they go every which other way, and unfortunately, that leads that has led to suicide ideation. And that was that was what I was working backwards from. That was the you know hostage rescue, kill capture, whatever you want to call it now mission that I had to do is reach veterans to to back off that cliff for a minute and 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 we can help them find some hope. So I took on to the internet with the with the hope that I can reach my people, my former tribes. However, they were listening in their in their manners of getting on online, and then the greater community. And then also it was sort of a a way of therapy to be able to express. And I guess I learned that at Nico and some of the other is you know journal, talk about it, express. And at that point I said, hey, I can go from from being in the shadows, which is what I needed to do to to protect the world that I came from to operate. But now I need to. Take everything that I've learned and, and and use it to try to reach other veterans and their families, not to lose hope. So I, I I went and just shared who I was as a as a you know vulnerability of strength. I listened to a bunch of videos on YouTube, primarily as I was started. The first one was you know Command Sergeant Major Tom Satterley from Delta. He runs All Secure Foundation. I listened to a couple of his podcasts on Combat Story, Team House, and a couple of them, like Wow. These super badass guys, right? Which you know, obviously I had worked with. I'd never have met Tom, but I'm like, I've never seen anybody share their stories. Chris Fontz on, and you know, DJ Shipley from from the Seals and a bunch of other guys. And I said, okay, this looks like what I want to be able to do. However, I'm a little handicapped that I, to the beginning comments, I'm I'm not going to talk about a unit, because I'm I'm not here to sell anything. I don't promote a nonprofit. I try to create who I am with no compromise, meaning no board members, no nonprofit, none of that. It's just me. So if I screw up, you know, the Pentagon police will come to my door, right? It's all on me, right? me and my family, right? Because so I had to talk to my spouse about what I was getting ready to do. So I wanted to do veteran advocacy, share who I was as another voice in whatever whatever chameleon way I needed to be able to. And so I did that. Actually, I created a, my first platform was like Echo 9 Axiom. I don't even know how the name came it came about and like a symbol and a purpose. And then originally I started with, what is it? With weapons, right? Cause I knew a lot of veterans that's, you know, did the inverse of what we did in the Intel world, how we found bad guys. So I took a lot of those lessons learned and kind of applied it to how do I reach veterans? And so a lot yeah. of veterans like, you know, they like photos, they like, you know, Thursday throwbacks, they like, right. So I just understanding how social media works, I figured that's how I would reach veterans and it worked. I was able to Reached a lot of veterans in a variety of ways, and then connect with a lot of the, the senior former special operators that were in, in a variety of other guys that were on social media, helping veterans and just sort of align with them and go, hey, I need your help pulling me in to this veteran advocacy, advocacy space because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disclose where I come from. I just needs to be me and my merits right post retirement. So that 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 has worked into where I'm you know where I where I'm at today. With sort of my Instagram, you know, just my name and sharing my stories, my photos, but again, with the intent of being another voice on mental health and suicide prevention. And then uh, along with that, I just recently started a PhD program specifically focusing on cognition. So it's in cyber psychology, and I'm focusing on the cognitive impacts of high assurance work, right? Intelligence professionals. Any you know drone operators, but it's focused right now on cyber operators, just because it's easier to get my dissertation done. But it is all the research that goes behind it. It is on that toll that guys like all of us suffer. Everybody equates this line of work to muscular skeletal pain. I submit what's actually causing a lot of people to unfortunately die by suicide isn't the muscular skeletal pain. It isn't even isn't post traumatic stress. It is the cognitive, you know, that, that are uh, associated with traumatic brain injuries. Hmm.
0: That that makes perfect sense to me just as a layman, honestly, because, you know, you're a part of a group of guys that can, you know, have a high pain threshold, to say the very least, I, I would imagine. So that's a kind of straightforward difficulty that they have overcome and can overcome, but the, the TBI and the, and the cognitive difficulties are altogether different from that, I would imagine. Yep, yep, they sure are. So have you had much success just being like an, an open ear to people? Do, they, do the people that you are trying to reach, do they come to you and, and really open up about their problems? Are you able to help them find the assistance that they need?
1: I, I do. I mean, a lot of it has been, you know, and it's interesting because it, it, it wasn't my plan. It's reached out to a lot, a lot of law enforcement, right? Because we're, we're very similar, right? It's so a lot of the similar struggles, you know, and even ironically, I think I have more friends that are in the Five Eyes community. That, that I did before, you know, in special operations. So I've, I've, you know, created good friendships with, there's a friend of mine, Damon Porter. He's former New Zealand SAS. He's out of Australia and he does a very similar, his his podcast. And actually those guys, I've connected with a lot of them because they're, they're much better, I think, than, than Americans to share their feelings, to how they communicate. It's a lot more direct I, I, and so they're very much more open. So I've been able to create a really interesting network of of people and reach a lot of them was just sharing, hey, here here's the procedures, here's the SGBs, take like ganglion block to the neck, which helps reduce and and help you heal, you know, and grow with post-traumatic stress. Huh. Here are the you know just sim- it's actually really simple, right? It isn't, and you know, I don't need to be a doctor, I don't need to be a PhD, or even you know, it's just the way to be able through vulnerability. And then amplifying the voice of others that do this daily, right? That's also helped sort of create, which is just sharing and just sharing that vulnerability. But yeah, I've 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 actually created new tribes and new connections, very powerful ones with with other people.
0: That's fantastic. That's that's really good to hear. And it sounds like you're kind of just getting started because it's been the past what eighteen months, two years or so that you've been working on that. It,
1: it has. I, I've I've actually come off. I I put it on cruise control. Because I realized, and just ironically, as I, I went into the study of cyber psychology, which is just really quick, it's the intersection of human behavior and technology. And you can see where that goes, right? So, you know, the, the same mediums that you use to share, you know, your spy craft has people addicted. And unfortunately, with veterans or people that, veterans, law enforcement, anybody who may be dealing with post-traumatic stress or whatever, that they get hooked on that phone, that's like, it can be a bad vice and they can get sucked into it. And so even myself, I realized that I was getting sucked into it. And even the the dopamine that comes from posting or viewing, and I would spend hours, hours that again, I was taken away from my family post-retirement without being somewhat more surgical and concise about what I was trying to post about the message. And so I backed off, I put it on cruise control. And then I also shared that, hey folks, there are ways to get what you need out of Instagram but don't live in it. Right. So today I actually have two phones Well, again, (laughs) but one (laughs) phone is a phone that's only used for social media. And it's, you know, and it's on, it's on a charger on a table. I only visit it once or twice. And so on my personal phone, it's a, it's an iPhone, but it's almost a dumb phone because it has no social media, but I'm much more surgical about my messaging and who I support and what I post than I did before trying to understand how to create that reach. So I safely put my name out there. Pentagon police haven't come to my house yet. So (laughs) I think I'm navigating okay. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I've seen that you posted that before. I've I've seen that you'll kind of drop out of sight for weeks at a time is what it seems like sometimes. And I I certainly cannot blame you one bit for that because it's overall not a good environment to spend a lot of time in. And I say that as someone who's essentially built a a business there, but I I fully see the dangers of it and all that. And luckily I'm able to put mine down for several hours at a time, a couple of times a day, you know, which is really, really that's good awesome. for my well-being overall. Even though I am, you know, tied to it for the the work and the outreach and all that that I yep. do as well. But yeah, it's it's absolutely a, a double-edged sword there. And it's funny, you know, I'm I'm constantly having to tell my own child, I'm like, no, you cannot have telephone, no, you cannot screen <laughs> all the time. And yes, I know that dad yep. has a business that ties him to it, but that's how I know that you cannot have it all the time specifically.
1: Yeah. My yeah, gosh. the kids are honest, man. They'll tell you. They'll, they'll <laughs> tell you. I'm trying, I try to take the phone away from my 17 year old. That doesn't work. And we're like, hey, man, let's let's go hang out and play with Lego. Let's go outside and kick the football. Let's, you know, whatever you want to do. Here, here, and here's the why, right? Like, here's here's what's really happening to your body. You're going down this endless, trying to see a picture, an image, and you know, you know, use it for what it is. It's just a tool. Grab a book, or read, go listen to a YouTube channel that are usually, you know, something like this are much more impactful, I think, than just trying to get that dopamine from 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 pictures, right? Um, oh, but know. no, I appreciate
0: that. I know. Yeah, if you take a step back, and I know this is a little bit off topic in some ways, but if you take a step back and look at the, the way that things are made, like just the pacing of television commercials these days, like the ones that are geared toward children, is so frantic, the pacing of it, that it, it makes sense to me that kids are also anxious these days and so overcharged by dopamine and that kind of thing it, it's really amazing to me how media presents itself to people with the specific goal of getting you addicted to it at all times
1: well yeah i mean you know this i mean and i and maybe in be previous guests that you have from you know information you know like cognitive warfare information operations whatever all of these are called right like that's that's huge the the disinformation that is going on in this media and again it just starts when we, we just spoke about it in the last ten minutes, with regards to an individual's mental health. Just what it does for following maybe you know you or people influencers under that you like. Now you're not even aware of maybe the crap that's coming in that may you know from disinformation. You know again from information operations, which is really, really catered to catch people or target you know, populaces. So mm-hmm. this is one of the aspects of why I also like sort of the cyber psychology aspect of not only taking care of our folks so they can do their job, but also in parallel, but later on, is how do I better understand you know, the mind of an adversary and, and how do we make them vulnerable through understanding their use of technology and, and how they use it against us. And essentially what is and has you know, has been and will continue to become sort of a cognitive warfare.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I really feel like we're truly being bombarded with all kinds of stuff. And a lot of it is, if not necessarily nefarious, it's what would be the word I'm looking for? It's, you know, to the benefit of them and to the detriment of us, for the most part, even, you know, commercial enterprises and foreign government, you know, adversarial intelligence organizations, all of that, they all have access to us now in ways that they never did before, because we're carrying them around in our pocket. And we can't stop looking at it, really. So it really is amazing. Exactly. Psychological burden that it, or the psychological toll that it's taking on all of us, honestly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take down to the human to go. You know what? I'm gonna, you know, I don't tell people you don't have to delete it. You just got to not make it primary, and you just got to be able to reflect of how much time, and in particular when you're in the car driving, your kid or your parent or your spouse, and you've reached for that phone because you've heard that ding. Or you feel nervous, depressed, you know something. It's a negative feeling, and then what you're doing is you're trying to reach for that phone to get that dopamine charge. That's essentially what you're doing. Because if it's a dumb phone, like we used to have those Nokia phones, right? Like the old, how many times did you ever look at that phone? You didn't. <laughs> Not that
0: because much. Because
1: you only you only waited you only waited till it rung, or it beeped because you got an SMS message. Right. Today you're constantly looking at it because you're trying to get something out of it, right? Okay. So, but that can be used against you.
0: Yeah, it certainly is too. Well, well, fantastic. This has been really interesting, Eric. I really appreciate it. I do have one final question for you here. I know that a lot of people have contacted me through Instagram and they're asking me questions about how to get involved in intelligence work or you know join the CIA and all that. And I'm like, hey, just go to the website, yeah. man. You know. But for people who are yeah. interested in following similar career path to you, do you have any advice that you can give, like skills that they should work on even before they join the military or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I would say because I get that all the time, you know, and and in particular to at least the military and special operations, like you're not going to war game, you know, and and even if someone told you, there is no answer key, right? Like there's no answer key of how to pass Mm selection, because you will be weaved out because you cannot change who you are, right, as a person. And so if you're dishonest, and you're trying to get the answers, and you're trying to war game it, like it will come out, right? Like it will ultimately... It will ultimately come out, and you're you know you're you're going to cause more issues than what you do. I think people today really need to think about it. I don't want folks to be you know get away from it because they follow, in particular Instagram, a lot of the people who've openly said that hey, they came from the CIA, IC, or special operations. Right? There's a lot of guys that that for different reasons have shared that they're Green Berets, Marine Raiders, whatever delta you know all all of these sort of sexy looking sort of positions, just understand the reality that comes with it. understand your limitations, understand if you're if you're married and you have a family, what toll that is going to take, right? Just understand that and be prepared for it. I think in, in preparation, you know physically being fit is always important, having good habits that's what's going to get you through the darkest times of any selection process is that ability to understand why you're not giving up, right? Having truly, you know, a cause, something greater than you. If you if you don't realize that you're selfish and you only think about you, it will come out when life sucks for you in a selection process, or you enter the team room for the first time and you're weeded out the life of you know, uh, of a special operator, an intelligence officer isn't as sexy. It's not the Jason Bourne's or the movies you see. There's a high cost that comes from it. And then even during it. Now, the next generation may have it a little bit different because, you know, my generation, we went through the global war on on terror and that's going to have some residual on, on the foundations that bring people in. But now we're, we're switching to sort of, you know, a great power competition, if you would, you know, making yourself someone that's needed in these organizations. So to your point, go to the CIA webpage, NSA webpage. I think it's in the army and and in some of the special operations recruiting of what they need, what kind of people they need or what kind of skills they need. And if you're in high school or you're in college, you know, hammer that down. It isn't being the gym rat with the big muscles. Half of special operators are, are not the bulky looking, ramble looking dude. They're we're normal-looking people, but it's what's in our brains and in our hearts that really carries us through the darkest part. and that's what that's what gets you to these elite positions. Open your mind, right? Be smart. Be be someone that is a value to the team, and, and you're not a you're and you're not a distraction. And more important than anything, don't ask anybody for tips on how to get through selection <laughs> or how to get through any course. If you if you're going to go down that rabbit hole, you may want to you know take a knee and think about it and just pursue it the best you can. And if you don't make it, it's okay. You you know, I especially will thank you for trying. Maybe that may not have been for you at the time. You may have the opportunity to try again, but you know, if you are if you wanna serve this country, then serve it and, and take that, don't take it lightly. It is an honor and a privilege, but it's a heavy toll. And if you do do it, then I thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. It certainly takes a toll that most people don't necessarily consider. Upfront, especially when they're young, unfortunately. But that's why I'm glad to be able to get your story out there because you know there are so many aspects of it that people find kind of tantalizing. But you've got the the real story of what really happens to people and the toll that it takes on you. So I'm very glad to help you share that with other people.
1: Thank you, Justin. I I appreciate it. I I love all your books. I love everything you post. Oh wow! (laughs) Every time you post, I feel like I want to buy something else. But I'm like, (laughs) man, I already have. I already have bins of stuff that my wife's like, I don't think you need. For lockpick sets, right? Like you
0: Yep, yep, yep. I'm a, I'm afraid uh, I know Well that. done, I'm, my friend. I'm, I'm currently on a World War II military binge. Like I don't need more canvas gear, but I'm probably gonna buy it. <laughs> I don't even I mean I'm not gonna go fight World War Two, so what do I need that stuff for? But I can't help it.
1: Right, right. right oh guys. man, awesome.
0: So is since you mentioned Instagram, is that a good place for people to look for you? Do you have anywhere else? Or should they just put their phone down and not get on social media to begin with, I guess.
1: if they hear this and they don't know who I am and they're just kind of trying to take from maybe my voice or maybe what I presented and and just look at some of the pictures and some of the writings and what I expressed or, or maybe the ecosystems that I have shared, then you can find me on Instagram today. It's easier. It's just Eric Miatis. It's in there. All I ask is, you know, I'm limiting the amount of chats that I take from people. There's a lot of unnecessary chatter that goes in there and questions. I'll point people towards the right way. So if you're interested in following me or, or reaching other eco- ecosystems within the same community, then I help share that. So you can find me on Instagram. If you're, you are you you're know, if you're, don't care about anonymity and you're a professional I'm somewhat on LinkedIn, I am on LinkedIn. It takes me a little bit to vet people. I'm very protective of my network on LinkedIn. And so you know, regardless of who you are, if, if it's under a good nature and, and you're a real person, then more likely you can also find them on LinkedIn. So it's yeah, those are the two: is Instagram and then on LinkedIn. But I appreciate that opportunity. And then if I may, if I may, you know, hey, there's a lot of nonprofits that I support and that I constantly share, all the way from people that help ho- with post-traumatic stress to therapy to alcoholism to just everything. There's a lot of resources out out there that I share and others share. So again, besides looking at the pictures of cool guys, please take advantage of some of the resources and share them with your buddy if you think somebody is in need or just needs uh, someone else to see a story. But thank you, Justin, for that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And you've got some really, really important messages to get out there to people that they have maybe ignored from other sources, but I certainly hope that they won't ignore it from you because you've been through the fire, as you said. So I really appreciate your time. And if you want to send me a list of those nonprofits, we can also include those in the show notes, for this episode to get them out there a little bit wider as well, hopefully.
1: That'd be great. Thank you, Justin. Will do.
0: All right. Thanks, Eric. I'll talk to you soon. All righty. Ciao. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come.
1: Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production
0: studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft
1: 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.